We're going to uh, continue our series called Pursuing God, Five Not-So-Secret Secrets to Knowing God Better Today. It's, um, this series kind of started uh, taking shape in my heart when I was traveling with Pastor George to visit some missionaries in the nation of Armenia and Georgia on the airplane in my Kindle. I was rereading a book I had read multiple times by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. A.W. Tozer is one of my very favorite authors. I try and read everything I can that he writes uh, or that he's written. He's, he's passed away, but what, what he's written. This book was only, it's only 77 pages long in my Kindle. But as I began to read it, um, I just felt God stirring things in my heart. Just simple, almost Bible study approach that Tozer takes towards this idea of the paradox of the soul. To chase after a God that we feel like we've already found. He says that's kind of the paradox. How do we keep chasing after? How do we keep relentlessly pursuing a God that we say, well, I've already found him? And as I was reading the book, and it's not five chapters, it's divided up a little bit differently. Just I thought, you know, this is something that's really taking shape in my own heart. I think this would be something good for us as a church uh, to dig into this idea of pursuing God. And we've titled it The Five Not-So-Secret Secrets of Knowing better, God Better Today. The reason we titled it that way is because I don't, we, we like to talk about, I mentioned last week, you know, the six secrets to growing more hair, or the seven secrets to a greener yard, or the, you know, the ten secrets to saving an extra $12,000 a year. I'm still working on that one. You know, I don't know how, you know, I cut, even cutting out a Starbucks a day doesn't get you there. Um, and it makes you much more miserable. So, uh, you know, keep the start. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, we don't think that these are meant to be secrets. In fact, there's pretty, it, the Bible is saturated with at least five ways we can know God better today. It's just, I think, in our effort to always try and be cutting edge and revolutionary, we want to try and come up with a new... There are time-trusted things that the Bible tells us will help you know God better today. That's part of our mission at Echo. And our mission, and I know you've heard me say it a lot, is to lead you and to lead people into a healthy, growing relationship with Jesus. Your relationship is either growing or it's dying. You're either getting closer to Jesus or farther away. It's either or. When we think about spiritual growth, if you need a visual, I'm a visual person. We don't think about it as a ladder. Like I climb up one rung and I'm a little closer to Jesus and I climb up a little rung. Because when you think about it that way, there's always some other human being I'm looking at and there's always somebody else I'm looking down at. And that's not really the way that we want to measure our spiritual growth by comparing me to somebody else. Um, Really, if you turned that ladder from being vertical to horizontal and you made it a line extending infinitely in both directions, get that visual in your mind. On one extreme is being absolutely nothing like Jesus. On the other extreme is being just like Jesus. And we're all a blip on that line somewhere. Um, doesn't matter what I th- where I think you are. What matters is that you and God agree on where you are. That's the most important part. So really the question is, am I getting, where am I in relationship to this? I should be able to see some distance that I've covered and say, hey, I don't feel like I'm all the way there, but I can definitely see how I've made some progress. I'm a little bit, I'm going to use a bunch of double negatives. I'm less unlike Jesus than I used to be, and I'm much more like Jesus than I used to be, but I see how much more room I have to grow. So we just want to keep you moving incrementally in that direction at Echo, closer and closer and closer to the image of who Christ really is. And so the point of this whole series is to give you some practical takeaways, some things for you to say, I want to know God better today. I want to get close to Jesus better today. And here's something I can do. Last week, we gave you two words. The first one was desire more. It all begins and ends in desire. The bottom line is if you don't want to be closer to Jesus, you won't be. 
You have exactly as much of God in your life as you want. No more, no less. If you don't want to pray, you won't. If you don't want to read your Bible, you won't. If you don't want to confess your sins, if you don't want to believe, if you don't want to serve, if you don't want to surrender things, if you don't want to know God's presence, you won't. The thing that breaks in us most frequently is the want to part of things. And, and in fact, people come to me all the time. You know, Pastor, can you give me a, you know, I'm having trouble reading my Bible. I'm having trouble praying. Can you give me a different strategy? And, and, and for a while I used to do that. And I found that it was very unsuccessful. Really, the, the, the thing is, once you decide that you really want to and that craving awakens inside of you, you find a way. You find a way. And really, for me to know God better, I have to want to. I want you to know God better, that means nothing. You have to, I want you to want to pray. I want you to want God's presence. I want you to want to decrease and for him to increase. That's what I want for you. So last week we talked about how do you jumpstart that desire? How do you jumpstart that craving? If you find that your want to is broken, how do you fix it? That's what we talked about last week. This week, um, we're going to talk about surrendering everything, which is just an awesome title. I know you're excited about that. We'll leave a little, some Tupperware bins at the door. You can just leave all your things here and you can surrender them on the way out. That's not really what that means, but some people think that it does. Let's, let's look in the Bible about what it says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's how the New Living Translation says it. God blesses those who are poor and who realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, let me ask you a question that needs a little bit of a additional explanation. There's some other translation that add two words at the end of poor, which sometimes help us figure this out. Does anybody know what those who are poor? In spirit, okay. Just put a little bookmark in your mind. Jesus is not saying here, God blesses those who are poor in wallet. And some of us think that what this verse is saying is that God has some type of bias towards those who have less in terms of possessions and economics and finances and things than he does to those who are wealthy. But if you would read the Bible through the beginning beginning to the end, you would find a big problem with, with thinking that way because God used all kinds. He used the very, very, very wealthy. He used the very, very, very poor. He used the working class people. It's apparent when you read the Bible that it's not that God has some specific bias towards us based on how much or how little we have, yet we have this statement of Jesus that says God blesses those who are poor in spirit and who realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And that's what I want to get at that. Who are these poor that Jesus is speaking of? Um, and, and, and how do we arrive at that? We sang about, you know, a little bit earlier today, you're God alone, and before time began, you were there. God was always previous. He was, he's always been around. And God, even before he made us, if you read the account in Genesis of creation, which I accept as truth, as the word of God, that man wasn't the first thing that God created. He created some other stuff before that he made us, right? Before he made us, he filled the world with good, Genesis used the words, things. He filled the world with good things for us to enjoy. Adam even got to name some of those things. But it says that God went through a very intricate, specific, ordered process of making an environment for us that was desirable, that was good, that was pleasurable, that he could lavish things to us. And the idea was always that man would rule over the things that things would never be at the center of the man, but that man would rule over things. Unfortunately, 
this arrangement didn't last too long. There was sin. And after sin, something happened that's kind of tragic. What happened, one of the consequences of sin is that the center place that God wanted in all of us to be exclusively His started to be replaced with things. And the pursuit of God faded in man and a new pursuit began, the pursuit to have and possess things. Pastor, can you be more specific? I could. But the more specific that I get, I'm going to make some of you feel worse and others of you feel like you're off the hook. The reality is that if you read the Bible from the beginning to end, you'd see that the pursuit of things was very varied because that meant something different. And it works so subtly because some of the things that you and I seek to possess are good things that God gave to us to enjoy. They're not sinful things we need to repent for. They're good things that are occupying a space they don't belong in. Pastor, are you saying that we all need to give up more money? Not necessarily so. Remember, this is not a message on materialism. If materialism is a symptom, the disease is possessiveness. Materialism, you know, you don't even have to have a lot of material to be materialistic. Do you understand that? You don't have to be wealthy to be materialistic. You just have to think that you must be wealthy to be significant in order to be materialistic. It starts way earlier on, which is a whole message on another topic. So what we really want to do, what Jesus was talking about, is being free from the tyranny of things. He says the person who has learned to, basically saying in this verse, the person who's able to have things without those things having him has become poor in their spirit. Because they realize that none of those things will fill what only God can. And he says, blessed is the person who doesn't consider their spirit filled with all kinds of possessions. They have rid their spirit of their possessions. They have become poor in their spirit. And because they've become poor, they have everything. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the pathway to knowing God better does not skip around the lesson of having to surrender our possessiveness to God. So our big idea for today, and this is one you really have to think about. The more I went through this, the message was like 37 pages long. I was like, I'm just going to have to cut it down to four, and we're going to let the Holy Spirit work on us this week. The big idea is that to know God better, you must, you must surrender everything in your life to him. You must surrender everything in your life to him. Now, this is not in my notes, but it's just coming to my mind right now. There tends to be dividing issues in church that I'm not sure God meant to be dividing issues. I'll name a few of them. You know, people come to me oftentimes and say, Pastor, what's your feeling on what kind of music I should listen to or what rating of movie I should watch or, you know, or, or alcohol and casual drinking or, or, or things like that. And they'll ask me about all these different kind of choices. And it's interesting, if I get a group of people involved in a discussion like that, there's not usually a common opinion. And let me tell you why. Some of those things are, some of those things, you might disagree with me, but some of those things are really matters of conscience. There may not be an absolute statement in the scripture that buttons it all up for us, but God trusts us enough that as we get to know him better, we listen to the Holy Spirit and we act on that. 
Here's what happens. You'll find one person in the room who says, well, I don't have an issue with any of the music that I listen to. And another person says, I have a big issue with the music that I listen to. And so I'm very extreme. And when I listen to the other person says, well, it doesn't really bother me. Here's what I'll tell you. The closer you get to God, he'll deal with everything. You might not be at a place in your journey where he's dealt with you about what kind of music you listen to yet. Okay. As you move along, he'll say, okay, now, now we need to deal with this area. There are things God is just dealing with me right now that are unique to me. They don't even necessarily sin areas, but very, very, I, I'm not going to roll into all of them, but things I'm like, man, he didn't deal with me about this 10, 15, 20 years ago, but it seems like right now, this is an area of my life he's meddling with a little bit. If you want to know God better, there can't be anything that you hold on and possess so tightly that you say this is off limits to God. And we're talking about something about as benign as music and movies and things like that. What about when it's your son? What about when it's your marriage? And God says, <laughs> you have to be careful here, but God says, listen, your affection towards and your love towards your son is a good thing, but it's gone to the center of your life. He's become more important to you than me. Now we're at the other extreme end and everybody gets uncomfortable. Here is a good healthy relationship that turns different. We'll talk about Abraham in a minute. That's really what it boiled down to for Abraham. Abraham loved his son so much that it had displaced God at the center of his life. And God had to try and help Abraham get that back in the right order. I will tell you this. This is not a pleasant, easy topic to think about. But if you want to get to know God better, you must and I must come to a place where we're willing to surrender everything. Here's what Tozer says. Our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. God's gifts now take the place of God and the whole course of nature is upset by this monstrous substitution. God always intended that we would be able to enjoy and share and have things. He never intended that we would possess them and they would possess us. Even before God created man, he created good and wonderful things. But God made us to pursue him, not things. You know, we use those words, my and mine, a lot. We do. Try and take a toy from a toddler, and you'll find out how quickly we learn possessiveness. You know, I try and take something from Chase. No, that's mine. I'm like, where did you learn that? It's just almost like it came out of him instinctively. That's his toy. It belongs to him. And his whole happiness in that moment is tied to his ability to possess that toy and him to have it and nobody else. And yet, as we go through life, can't you see how we operate the same way? Especially those of us who know Jesus. Because this operates so subtly inside of us and it feels so natural that we often don't recognize it for what it is. We get attached to things. We get attached to gifts to abilities, to talents, to relationships, to expectations, to pursuits, to stuff, to money, to houses, to cars. We get attached to things and we let them at the center of our heart and then we wonder why we get stagnant in our growth towards God. It's because we have invited something into a shrine that was never meant for those things to inhabit but only for God alone. The pursuit to possess things feels so natural that it lies undetected in many of us. So back into your notes. How do we break free from this? The only way to break free from the slavery of possessions and things is to learn to have everything and yet possess nothing. And that freedom doesn't come by fighting. It comes through surrender. 
The only way to ever break free from this is to learn this secret, to be able to have everything but possess nothing. To be able to have, be able to have money and house and car and all the other things in life, to have relationships, to have those things, to enjoy those things, to share those things, but never possess them, but to surrender them. Well, how do I get there? Do I fight this? No. Some freedom comes through fighting and other freedom comes through surrender. This freedom comes from surrender. It's the ability to enjoy things without serving things. It's the beauty of having things without things having you. It's the freedom to be able to say, you know, I have enough. That's enough for me. The opposite is there's never enough. One of the trappings of wealth is that you'll get to a point where you feel like you have enough, but the, the deeper you get into it, I mean, watch some of the uber wealthy. There's never enough. There's never enough money, not enough houses, not enough cars, not enough vacation homes, not enough islands. I mean, some of these people have multiple islands. I was watching a show on TV the other day, you know, showing this joker has multiple islands and he had just finished rehabbing his seventh island. And they said, well, are you finally gonna be able to step back and take a break? He's like, nah, I'm looking at an eighth one. You just get to this place where there's never enough freedom from that. It comes to a point where you can say, you know what, I can have and I can enjoy If God wants to bless me with more, I will enjoy it, but I feel like I have enough. I don't need to go pursue and possess more things to make me feel more significant and content. So let's give you a quick example and then talk about how you do it. So there's this really challenging story in the Old Testament about a man named Abraham and his son named Isaac. Many of you who have read through the Bible or have been in church for any length of time will know this story. There's others of us in the room that have never heard of this story, so it's very difficult to just kind of peel out one little chapter of a 50-chapter book and help give you the whole picture. And time doesn't permit me to give you the whole backdrop of the story, but it's in the book of Genesis. It's a, it's a really, really, really interesting read. People have written their doctoral thesis on it, so I, I, I feel inadequate to the task. But let me just give you a quick idea of how this operated in the life of Abraham. Abraham was getting very, very, very old, But God made him a promise. He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make a covenant with you, which is an extremely important word. Covenant is the strongest union, the strongest bond, the strongest tie that God ever created. That's why marriage is a covenant. It is a mutually agreed upon covenant between two parties witnessed by others that is punishable by death if either party breaks it in the Old Testament. So God says, I want to make a covenant with you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you and all the world through your son. And Abraham's like, hold up, I, there's a problem. I'm a grand, I'm grandfather age. Don't have, you know, no more babies coming from my bloodline. I'm done with all that. God says, no, you're going to have a son. And I'm going to bless you and everybody through your son. I make you this covenant. Short time later, Isaac is born to Abraham. And you can tell, you can just imagine from the story of that from the moment Abraham laid eyes on Isaac, there was a deep love and a very deep bond. Not only from a father to a son, which I have experienced, and it is an incredibly deep bond. It's almost scary. Like Sometimes I feel like, man, I love my son so much, it almost scares me sometimes. Like I really love this kid. would do anything for him. But not only that, what all that Isaac represented to Abraham, Isaac represented God being faithful to his promise. It represented God's blessing. It represented the future of the earth. It represented God's covenant. Isaac represented so many things to Abraham. And Abraham loved him so much. And God recognized even went out of his way to point out the degree to which Abraham loved Isaac. 
And you have to imagine, you know, Abraham's grandfather, age when Isaac's born, and the time of this story, you know, Isaac's gotten a little bit older, probably, you know, in his early, you know, older childhood, early teens, somewhere in that area. And God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son whom you love, <laughs> puts that in there, and I want you to take him to the land of Moriah and take him up on top of the mountain. I want you to offer him to me as a burnt sacrifice. He says this out loud, undeniably to Abraham. This is not a dream. This is very, 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 very real. So Abraham's left with this. And now it's nighttime. And he hasn't shared this with anybody. And the writer of Genesis doesn't bring us into the scene, but you can probably imagine what Abraham's going through. In fact, Tozer says that he doubts that until another person wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane that there was no more turmoil that a human being faced over a decision than what Abraham had to go through that night and deciding what he was going to do. God had asked him to take Isaac, his only son that he loves, that God promised to give him and bless him and gave him to Abraham as he gave He says, take him up on the mountain, offer him to me. Surrender him to me as a burnt sacrifice. I will tell you right now, it would not have been a long discussion between Phil Nauer and God. I, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I shared that with Pastor George one time. He said, really? He said, if God spoke to you out loud and you knew that it was God, you wouldn't do it. I said, well, that's what I'm just thinking right now. I, like, I, just, I can't even wrap my mind around that. I don't know what Abraham went through that night. I can imagine him bent over, convulsing, weeping. I can imagine him thinking, God, why not me? Why not take me home? I'm old. I've lived a good life. Why not take me home and leave him here? Why him? I don't know what it sounded like. I don't know what it looked like. I don't know physically how ill he must have become. But here's what I know. At some point that night, he had a breakthrough with God. Hebrews tells us later on what Abraham's thought process was. Abraham came to a place where he really slowed himself down and thought through this, and he said, let me begin with what I know. I know God. He is a covenant-keeping God. He made a covenant with me that he would bless the whole world through Isaac. And if Isaac really dies, then God is breaking his covenant. So God must have something else in mind here that I'm just not seeing because he won't break his covenant. So I should be able to trust Isaac to God and what Hebrews tells us, Abraham reasoned in his mind that after he killed Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead and keep his promise. The beautiful thing is that even though Abraham erred in knowing God's method, he got his heart right. And so the Bible says early the next morning, Abraham got up and got Isaac. Something happened overnight. He didn't sleep on it. He got up and he, had changed. he put his faith into action. The fast forward to the end of the story, he takes Isaac. It's the three-day walk. They get there. He takes him up on the mountain. God lets Abraham go through it right to the end. He had tied up his son's hands, put him on the altar, was ready to put the knife through him. I don't want to make it sound like this was an easy thing for him to do. But right when he's ready to put the knife through him, God says, stop, don't lay a hand on the boy. Provide for him a sacrifice. And God comes through. It's almost as if God was saying, I was never intending to destroy your son. I just wanted to make sure that if I'm going to bless the world through you, that you really have truly surrendered everything to me. 
take him home, put him in your house. This is a very, there's a lot of people who read stories like this and have big questions about God's character. And it's easy to see how they get there. What God would make someone go through all that? A God who loves us enough to make sure that things never creep into our life where they don't belong. That's extreme. It is extreme. Can you understand? I don't understand all of it. But here is a man who God took through a process and eventually landed at a place where he said, Isaac, God's essentially saying to Abraham, listen, I, my intention was never to destroy Isaac. He was always safe. He was always safe. But you had to trust me first. I promise you from that point on, Abraham rid himself of words, my and mine. He lived the rest of his life knowing God better than probably anybody, almost anybody else that ever walked the face of the earth. There are others that I know that knew him well. Abraham learned something about God and how deeply he could trust him. And you know what? This was a guy that was wealthy. Read the book. Abraham had tons of stuff. Herds, animals. He had his relationship with his son. He had a great family. People probably from the outside said, man, that Abraham, he's a wealthy guy. And he probably just smiled quietly and thought, they have no idea how wealthy I really am with God at the center of my life, but it came to a really difficult place. God asked him to put something on the altar that God wasn't wanting Abraham to kill, just reorder in the priority chain. And this was the way that he could show that he's like, I have my son, but I don't possess my son. He belongs to you. And I trust you. These are tough lessons. So how do I surrender the pursuit of my possessions to God? How do I start breaking free from this desire to pursue and to p- pursue and to possess things? Number one, get very, very, very honest with yourself and with God. Get very, very, very honest with yourself and with God. Have you ever had a very, very, very raw and honest conversation with anybody? I mean, very, very, very honest completely unguarded, completely defenseless, completely open. Have you ever had that experience? I will tell you, if you want to really break free from this pursuit of possessing of things, you have to get very, very, very honest with yourself and with God. Now listen, He knows already He knows everything. Think you're going to just spring something on him he hasn't heard? He's going to be like, hold up. Angels, settle down over there for a second. This is new. (laughs) Say that again. He knows. He knows. He knows what you struggle with. Problem is you and I aren't always that honest with ourselves. The Christian who is alive enough to know himself even slightly will recognize the symptoms of the disease of possessiveness and will grieve to find them in his own heart. If your desire for God is strong enough within you, then you'll want to do something about it. And what should you do? You have to get very, very, very honest with God. Linda and I were talking a little bit this week. She was listening to, um, we were talking about something I said in last week's message. And we were reflecting on, you know, she said when you were talking about the time when, when I, Phil, sat down and I just 
I started getting very specific about some areas in my life. I just said, you know what, I'm going to be very, very, very honest with you. I'm just going to start confessing some things I've been dealing with. What I expected to feel when I got very, very, very honest with God, I expected it to be painful. I expected it to be embarrassing. I expected to feel guilty. I expected to feel dirty. I expected to feel ashamed. And it took, it was, it's very, very hard to just launch into a very, very, very honest conversation. Usually you have to kind of work up to it. I, what I told Linda, I said, what I experienced in that moment was far different from what I imagined. The more honest and raw I got with God, the more free, liberated, unburdened I felt. It's crazy. I will tell you, when you are very, very, very honest with God about what's really going on, we shudder to think about it. But I will tell you, from personal experience, the more raw and open and honest with God, and this sounds... The language is real great. The better you feel. The more free you feel. It's like this stuff that is toxic inside of you has finally found a way to get outside of you into a place where it's not hurting you anymore. And we expect, it's like we cower God, like we think we cower from God, like he's going to be this abusive father that if I really start, God, I have a problem with things and I have a problem with toys and I'm obsessed with, with, with this and I check my checking account 17 times a day and I watch this and I... You think that God's just going to like give you a lecture and what he just says is... is, is (laughs) I wasn't going to use this analogy. I'm going to use this analogy and I'm going to move on to the next point. (laughs) Here's what I... This might be a terrible analogy, but I'm going to do it the best I can. Here's how I feel like these moments go with God sometimes. When I was little... I got so wired for Christmas every year that I was so stressed. This was back when kids didn't know what they were getting for Christmas and like it was a genuine surprise. You know, nowadays, we just send our kids with the money to the mall. Go buy what you want and we'll wrap it later. But it's like there were real surprises back in the day. And uh, I would get so nervous and anxious before Christmas that I would get nauseous and sick every Christmas. And every Christmas, this is kind of gross, so I'll be very tactful. Uh, you know, like my memories of most Christmas Eves are me huddled over the toilet bowl throwing up, you know, because I was so nervous about what I was going to get for Christmas. It's kind of a sickness. I realize that. Um, <laughs> one year, I was up at my, uh, we were at my grandparents' house. And, uh, and my uncles and my aunts were all there. I was like 12 or 13, and it hit me again. And it was like 2 in the morning. I go in the bathroom, and I'm like, I feel so sick in my stomach, I don't want to vomit, but I know once I do, I'm going to feel better. And I was just in there just trying to get the process going. And my Uncle Bill comes into the bathroom, and he kneels down on the floor next to me, and he puts his hand around my tummy, and he puts his other hand on my head so I didn't, I guess, follow myself into the bowl. And uh, he said, go ahead, buddy, it's going to be all right. And I vomited a little bit, and he said, do you, you need to do some more, you're going to be okay. And the whole time he's just there holding me as I'm getting all the stuff out of me that was in my system, and he wasn't grossed out by it. And he wasn't angry. He wasn't put off. He was just being so compassionate and just loving me through. And I was all done and cleaned up. He says, you feel better. I said, I feel better now. And like, he didn't bring it up again. It's just between he and I. Imperfect analogy. But when you get very honest with God, sometimes you feel like you're just bringing up stuff that you just, you just, you don't really want to get it out. But once you do, it's going to feel so much better. And we f- expect that God in those moments is just going to be shocked and just stop all the angels and lecture us. Get very, very, very honest with God. Like I feel it's just I feel like him just holding me, saying, Okay, son, is there more you need to tell me? It's okay, get it out. Is there more? Is there more? Some of you find a hard time believing that God is like that because no human being has been like like that for you. But God in that way is unlike who we are naturally. He is a gracious, merciful, 
powerful God who if you will just get very, very, very honest with him, he will hear you and he offers forgiveness for your sins. He offers you strength to overcome it. He offers you partnership and relationship to walk you through it. He gives you resources and information in his word and through his messengers to deposit into your life. He wants to be able to hear those things from you. But you've got to take that first step and be very, very, very honest with yourself and with God. Number two. Number two. Ask God to take things out of your heart so he can reign there without rival. Once you've gotten honest with God, if you struggle with this and you recognize that you do, you might have to get very specific and ask God to take certain things out of your heart so that he can reign there without rival. Now, what it doesn't necessarily say is to take things out of your life. I'm not going to go home and say, God, please take Chase out of my life so that you can be... That's not what I'm asking. But I want to make sure God is at the center of my life and that Kendra and Chase are real close, as close as they can be without being in God's space, though. You might have to get specific with God. Because if we let selfishness, which is really what this is, and possessiveness live, in the end, we're going to lose everything. But if we can get away from selfishness and give it all for Christ's sake, we really don't lose anything. In fact, we preserve everything for eternal life. That's what Jesus said. So if you want to be my follower, that's what we're all trying to do. You have to turn from selfishness and pick up your cross and follow after me. You see, we can't keep chasing what self wants and what God wants simultaneously. And you might have to get very, very honest with God and say, God, this pursuit, this thing, whatever that repre- whatever Isaac represents to you, this thing has taken a place in my life that it ought not have. And I ask you to remove it. Tozer writes a prayer to pray, a sample prayer to kind of help us. I tried to improve on it, but I failed miserably, so we'll just let the guy speak for himself. Here's what he says. He says, if we'll have an open and frank conversation with God about our thirst to pursue and possess things and ask his forgiveness, his deliverance, and his help, he will rush to our aid. Perhaps a simple little prayer like this. God, I want to know you, but my cowardly heart is afraid to give up its toys. I can't part with them without internal bleeding, and I will no longer try to hide from you the terror that this parting brings to me. Chris prayed these words this morning. I come trembling, but nevertheless I come. Please uproot from my heart those things which I have cherished for so long and which have become part of my living self so that you may enter. And live there without rival. It's simple. That is a tough prayer to pray. (laughs) It's a tough prayer to pray. But if you find yourself wanting to be free from this, confess it to Jesus. He's faithful and he's just. He will forgive us. He will cleanse us from all wickedness, all selfishness. But we have to start by getting honest with ourselves and God. And then asking God to remove those things that have taken place in our life. So that he can occupy that place without rival. This is tough to hear. It's tough to do. I can't hide from that, which is why we chose the story of Abraham, because that's an extreme example here. If you really want to pursue God and knowing God, there is a cost to knowing God. Salvation is free. Knowing God intimately costs us everything. Salvation is free. I just have to believe and confess, and I get it. And if you want your journey to stop there, then you can stop there, but you're going to die there. I want to know God. The more I know of Him, the more I want to know Him. But I've found that the closer I want to get to God, it is, in, it is unavoidable that there is a cost. The cost is that you must walk with God. That's the cost. Walking with God is pleasurable to our spirit. 
Our spirit loves to walk with God, to be in His presence uninterrupted. Our flesh hates it. It hates it. Our flesh doesn't like to sit in God's presence without any distractions. Our flesh doesn't like to surrender. Our flesh doesn't like to desire more of His presence. Our flesh doesn't like to seek Him in prayer. Our flesh doesn't like to study the Bible for long periods of time. Our flesh doesn't like to give up things it craves. There's a cost. Don't be surprised when getting close to God sometimes feel like it's more costly than you expected. I don't want it... I don't know that I want it to be free and easy. I want to invest in my pursuit of God. Because the things I invest in are the things I bring great expectations to. I want to invest in my pursuit of God. And it might mean that along the way, maybe today it's giving up this word or that word or this program. That's all well and good. But the closer you want to get to God, those things get weightier and weightier and weightier. Some of you who walk very close to God and have could come up and tell stories I have yet to be able to tell. I have paid a cost to know God and many of you have. I can say it's the one investment in my life that I've never regretted. Never regretted. I've made, some inv- <laughs> I've made some great investments. I've made some terrible investments financially. I've bought things. I've spent money on things that I wish I would have never spent money on in my life. Most of them came from a drive, drive-through window. But, you know, I've spent money on things. I've regretted stuff I've bought, food I've ordered. I've regretted houses I've lived. I've regretted all kinds of... I've never regretted the investment I've made and the cost that I've paid to know God better. What do you get for the investment? You get more of Him. That's what you get. Well, I don't know that that's enough. Then you don't know Him. If you would say that knowing Him better isn't worth the cost, I tell you, you don't don't have an accurate idea of who He is. I would invite you right now to taste and see how good He is. Taste, just take a little taste. Take a little taste of how good he is. You won't walk away from that plate saying that's enough. You'll say, what do I have to give up to have more of that in my life? And finally, number three, recognize that all good things come to us on loan from God and are meant for us to enjoy and share, but never to be considered our own. First two things are kind of an action step. This one is kind of something that just has to sink in. It's something we have to recognize. I wish I had more time to talk about this one this morning. I don't. What this really means is that there's more that we have in life than tangible possessions. Every good thing I have in my life, my talents, my gifts, my abilities, my aptitudes, the things that you have, they're all gifts from God. All gifts from God. Those things serve a number of purposes in my life. It helps us be able to, I can turn those things into a way to gain employment for my life and to be able to take care of my family. But he also gave me those gifts and talents and abilities and aptitudes to be able to let him use me. And if I don't consider them mine to possess, but his to be able to have on loan and enjoy and share and bless other people's lives, he can't only just, then it, it's like God gets it to me, but he also gets it through me into the lives of other people. And this is becoming a, a lost concept, especially in the Christian kingdom. Man, I would like to say, I'm not going to say that this morning. I need to pray on that one before I say that publicly. But I feel very strongly about this one. Here's what the Bible says. Where does, where does that come from? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this. What do you have that God hasn't given you? What a great question. What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have really is from God, why do you boast as though it wasn't really a gift? You ever know people that run around and boast about their stuff that they didn't pay for, that they didn't work for, that someone just gave them? Doesn't it drive you nuts? There's nothing wrong with having people give you gifts or inheriting things. That's all well and good. It's when we pass that off as the work of our own labor that drives people nuts. It's like, you don't get the credit for that. 
God asks the bigger question. Why do you run around thinking about it? It's your talent, your ability. You're good at this, you're good at that. Who gave it to you? And if you recognize that it's a gift, then why do you think it's all about you? I gave it to you in the first place. I gave you the ability to sing, the ability to lead. I gave you the ability to earn. I gave you the ability to engineer. I gave you the ability to design. I gave you the ability to build. It's a gift. I gave it to you to share, to enjoy, to take care of yourself, but also to give away and to bless the lives of other people. It was never yours to possess and call it your own. Any more so than you get credit for having blue or brown eyes. God gave it to you. What James says is don't be misled. Every good and perfect gift or every good and perfect thing is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. We have no more right to claim credit for special abilities than for blue eyes or strong muscles. I had a very unique experience recently. We had a, a leadership picnic at Bob and Elisa's house, and they have a beautiful place with a beautiful yard with a really steep hill and, uh, and fork, and they have a garden outside, and Bob's always liking to build things and fix things, and and they just moved here uh, within the last year and said, hey, if you ever have any events, you'd like to just have a large group of people. We'd like to make our house available. So, you know, like 50 of us descended upon their house. And now 50 people coming to my house would put me completely in the hospital with anxiety and stress. Like it just wouldn't work. It's stressful to me. We showed up 50 people deep. You know, and Tawny had arranged this whole evening. And, and you know, we're... I mean, they had the fire going, they had volleyball set up and horseshoes and basketball and we're all over their house and the kids are running everywhere and, you know, we're kind of driving home and as a pastor, I always feel like this, every time we have an event at someone's house, I want you to need to send an apology note the next day, like, I'm sorry, you know, we messed up everything and I hope we cleaned up. So, you know, I'm in my office a couple of days later, I get an email from Bob and Alicia that just said, we just want to send you a thank you note for letting us having the honor of hosting an event at our home. We told God when when he led us to, to, to this area and led us to this piece of property that, that, that it was his and that we just looked forward to the day when we could have people from our community and from our church come and just use this place. And thank you so much for making that dream come true. It was just a wonderful evening. I'm thinking, I've never in my life had this happen where I go to someone's house for an event and I'm supposed to write, they thank me for letting us have 50 people come crash their house. Here is somebody who has learned surrendering everything. They have a beautiful place and they have a beautiful a beautiful place to live in a beautiful home, but they don't consider it their personal possession. This is something God blessed them with that they get to enjoy and have, and they open it up for other people. And I thought, this is, this is something I need to learn from. This is the way I want to treat my life. Not that, you know, everybody has to have a key to my car and every, you'd be in bad shape, you know, but I mean, not that everybody has to have a key to my car, but to be able to have and enjoy the things God puts in our life, but to use them, to share them, to loan them, to gift them as God brings them to us. We're often hindered by giving up. Here's what the quote from Tozer as we close, we're often hindered from giving up our treasures to God out of fear for their safety. Especially when it's relatives and family and relationships. But we need to have no such fears. Our Lord came not to destroy, but to save. Everything is safe which we commit to Him, and nothing is really safe which we haven't committed to Him. Really frames it for, for us, doesn't it? You know, we, we often are afraid to trust God. Well, man, if I just say, God, I, I, I'm going to give you all my, I'm going to trust you for all my finance. I'm going to trust you for my job. We're, we're afraid that all, the moment I say that, it's all gone. That's why we hold on to things so tightly, because we don't trust it if we let them go. We think that if we release our grip, God will take it away. Well, if I, if I really give the way that's in my heart to give, God won't replace it, so I need to hold on to it real tight. If I really give up control of my career, I'm going to end up unemployed. If I give up control of my family, they're going to run amok. And and God's saying, you misunderstand my character when you do that. 
when we hold on to things too tight, it's really an indication I don't trust him enough that if I hand that over to God and I don't consider it my possession, that it's something he gave to me to enjoy and to have. If I hand it over to God, he's going to do something with it. He's going to rip it away from me to teach me a lesson. No, no, no. Everything is safe. Everything is safe that you trust to God, but nothing is safe that you possess so heavily on your own self. That's really the lesson of surrendering. So, so what about you? What do you feel like the Holy Spirit might be speaking into your heart today? What are the things that he might be inviting you to think about or to do? Is it time for you to have a very, very, very honest conversation with God? It doesn't even have to be about this. Has it been a while? Have you ever had a very, very, very open and honest conversation with God? You should try it. It's good for you. You won't knock him off the throne. He'll be okay. He can handle. He's a big enough God that he can handle your honesty. Maybe God's challenging you about some very specific things that are occupying a place deep in your spirit that ought not be there. Will you surrender those things to God today? Will you trust him enough to know that he asks us to surrender things, not so that he can destroy them, but so that we can experience the blessings of him being at the very center of our lives? Last question. Maybe God's inspiring you to share more of the things he's already gifted to you with others. Maybe it's time for you to think more seriously about serving or giving or gifting others with a taste of the good things God has already lavished on you. Some of you have the gift of encouraging people. You're just good at it. Don't be selfish with that gift. Let God help you give that away to someone when they need it because when you encourage someone, you give them courage. You give them courage. You make them feel that they can just float above water and you know, charge hell with a water pistol and all that other good stuff. Different things to think about. I'm going to invite Chris and our team to come back. They're going to close it with a song. Let's pray. Just in this moment where we're being quiet before God, you might be still thinking about what we talked about way at the beginning, about where you are on that line. Are you getting closer to God or farther? Are you becoming more like Jesus or less like Jesus? One spot on that journey that we all need to come to is this, to decide what we're going to do about this man named Jesus. You have a right to decide to surrender everything to him and to make him the center of your life and to live life the way Jesus guides us and leads us to follow his example or to say that's not for me. You have the right to make that choice for yourself. So I'm asking everybody in the house this morning to make that choice for or against, to follow Jesus or to not follow Jesus. You get to decide. You get to decide. Some of you have made that decision already. Maybe you, you haven't or, you, or up to this point you said, I've decided I don't really want to follow Jesus, but I want a chance to answer that question again. Here's your chance. If you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior and you are ready to surrender everything, to get very, very, very honest with God about who you are and who you're not and to invite him into the center of your life and you're ready to follow him and live life the way that he, he lived and the way he guides us to live, the way he helps us to live. Then boy, is he ready to have you. If you will have him, he will have you. He's already made that decision. So if you're ready to, to do that, it's just a simple prayer of commitment, a personal prayer between you and God. I can't pray that prayer for you and make it real easy. I could pray for everybody in the world to be in right relationship with Jesus. But no, he wants you to decide and only you can decide for you. So I'll give you an example of a prayer to pray. 
And if that's really what you want to do in your heart, you want to make that decision, you can pray this prayer right now in your seat. You can whisper it to God. You can just put it in your thoughts and think it towards God. But here's here's a prayer that you can pray to, to start this whole relationship. Just say, dear Jesus, I come to you just as I am. I've lived life my own way. I've made decisions that feel best to me. I've sinned against you. I've not lived the life that what, you, that what you wanted me to live. Please forgive me for living life my own way. Cleanse me from my sins. Wash me and make me new on the inside. Jesus, I do invite you to take the central place in my heart today. And I make a commitment to follow you all the days of my life, to live like you lived as you give me help. I can't do it on my own, but I know that with you, I can be all things because you give me strength. And if you've prayed that prayer for the first time, the Bible tells us all the angels in heaven rejoice when even a single person makes that decision. You are personally responsible for an outbreak of a party in heaven this morning. That's how important you are to Jesus.